He is risen. Amen. I wait all year to be able to say that. I hear you. Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is David Kakish. I'm one of the elders here at Cornerstone Church, and today is Easter, the day that we set aside to really celebrate and reflect on the significance of a rolled away stone and an empty tomb. Yeah? Uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, from cradle to cross to empty grave, it's just, it's good news. It's, it's good news. God, the righteous creator, made us, humanity, for his glory and our joy. He had good intentions in that, but in Adam, we wouldn't have done any better than Adam and Eve. Just if you were reading the Bible thinking, oh, they really messed up, I wouldn't have done that. You're not reading the Bible correctly. In Adam and Eve, we rebelled against God's good rule, against his purpose, and with our rebellion, uh, we broke the world. All of creation was affected because of us. Uh, the course of God's good world was redirected into the direction of despair and destruction. And uh, this is how Paul puts our situation in Ephesians 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following what the course of this world, all of creation was headed that way, following what the prince of the power of the air, the spirit of Satan that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That was our plight and the plight of the world. And the story could have ended there. It could have a just and powerful God could have put an end to that rebellion with a word. As I read through the crucifixion scene this week, I, Jesus says his last words from the cross is, it is finished. And whenever I read those words, I'm thankful for his completed work on our behalf. But I also think those same words uttered with a different tone, those same words uttered in anger, in the midst of our rebellion, would have been the end of our existence. It's finished. I'm done with them. Uh, the story could have ended there, but it doesn't. Paul continues, but God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And not only did he make us Alive together with Christ, he raises us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God paid the penalty for our sins so that sinners like me and you can be made right with him and each other. Jesus died to spare us from death, and Jesus rose so that we could truly live. He raises us up and seats us with him in the heavenly places. If we repent of our sins and believe in God's grace, he will pay our penalty. He will redeem us. He will live in us. He will make us alive. He will lead us by his spirit. He will call us and bring us home. That's the gospel. That's the Easter message in a nutshell, right? They do a pretty decent job. You should never answer my questions because you know they're always a little tricky. It is. It really is. And praise God for everything I said. Uh, but it's not all of the Easter message. It's not all of it. What I shared, that message, uh, while all true, sees Jesus as the king of my heart. He's the king of my heart. He rules and reigns in me. He forgave me. He's calling me. He's bringing me home. And he is the king of my heart. But the borders of God's kingdom aren't limited by believing hearts. His kingdom isn't limited to believing hearts. This whole world 
is his. And the salvation that he accomplished from cradle to cross to empty grave, the salvation he accomplished, it's cosmic. It is universal. It is all-encompassing. It affects all that is because our sin broke all that is. So his redemption fixes and brings about a new trajectory for all that is. Jesus doesn't just deliver us from our personal battles with sin and set us on the trajectory of being home with him in heaven. The promise of deliverance that we heard in the background scripture from Genesis 3, the promise of deliverance from Genesis 3 was that the seed of the woman, Eve's son, would be humanity's champion. He would represent all of us. He would be humanity's champion, and he would crush Satan's head. Our God only knows how to triumph. He only knows victory. His name is Jesus, and he is the snake crusher. He is. And when we only see the gospel, the good news of the gospel, from our perspective, how we experience it, it is great news. But we won't grasp the full extent of what Jesus accomplished in his death and resurrection. We only see it from our perspective. So this morning, I want to preach a short Easter sermon from a different perspective, a different vantage point. And I want to do so through the book of Revelation. You can all groan out loud. I get it, right? Uh, Revelation is a polarizing book. And, you know, most Christians have a hate-love relationship with the book of Revelation. Uh, some hate it, you know, and others love it. Maybe too much. <laughs> uh, but most haters and lovers, and I don't say this to turn my nose, most often misunderstand the book of Revelation and what it's accomplishing. See, most of us, me included, uh, spend our days seeing, experiencing, focusing on uh, the world that we live in, the world that we see every day, that we can use our five senses to experience, right? That we can smell and taste and see and feel and emote and all the rest. We see the problems of this world. We see the solutions of this world. We experience the highs of this world and the lows of this world. We live in this world. We have heartache here. We have comfort here. We're frustrated by the thorns and thistles of here. We're relieved when God removes them. We live, focus, see, and experience this world. What about heaven? Yeah, sure. I mean, we know the heavenly realm exists. It does. We believe it. But for most of us, maybe you're different. For most of us, Heaven is a future reality. It's a future reality. It's a then thing. Heaven is then, but earth, this, our Sunday through Mondays, our work and our chores and the things we need to get done, this is a now thing. Heaven is then, earth, this is now. But that's why I try to constantly remind us that God's world and our world, uh, they kiss they kiss. The problems of earth reverberate in heaven, and the rumblings of heaven are felt on earth. Earth and heaven aren't necessarily two separate realities. They are in many ways interconnected. Earth and heaven are interconnected, and the axis point, the place where earth and heaven meet fully, mostly, is in a verse, the word became flesh and dwelled among us. Two separate existences, two separate realities come to this meeting point in the person of Jesus Christ. They meld together there. What I'm telling you this morning is there is a cosmic battle being waged all around us, even right here, right now as I'm speaking. 
And there are gruesome casualties in this war. Gruesome. Hell's champion, Satan, uses every tool at his disposal to wage war against God and his people. And whether we realize it or not, whether we see it or not, persecution, false teaching, uh, divisiveness, quarreling, division, the distractions of comfort and wealth, the gnawing desire that comes up inside us that wants our culture's approval, all of that are weapons that the ancient dragon uses to launch invisible assaults against our hearts. That's how it goes. And here's the crazy part. We feel the sting of those assaults. We feel the grief of sin's effect on the world. We do, and yet we usually don't consider the unseen realm. Why? Because, well, because it's unseen. We live and experience and focus on what we see. That's why Paul says, you do not battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities. Um, But that's what makes Revelation so great. I'm trying to stoke you up for this book and pump you guys up. What makes Revelation so great is in the book of Revelation, the veil between the two existences is pulled back. The veil between the seen realm where we live and breathe and move and have our being and the heavenly realm is pulled back. And John is given a glimpse at what's happening behind the curtain. Not just then, but even now during his present existence. And why that's cool is from Earth's vantage point, John, one of Jesus' disciples, one of his, he's in the inner circle. He saw the transfiguration, right? He was there. John, from Earth, saw Jesus arrested. He saw Jesus crucified. He saw an empty tomb. He talked to, touched, and felt a resurrected Jesus, and he saw him ascend into heaven. He experienced Easter from Earth. He did. But now... John gets to see that same reality play out in the heavenly realm in the passage we're going to look at today. And then he's commanded to write it down so that we would get to see and experience it too. Why? Uh, Why does Jesus reveal this to him? Because Jesus knew that the church would need to hear it. You see, the early church was being attacked from every side. They were persecuted. They were alienated from society. Uh, And what didn't come from outside came from within inside. They were divided, quarreling about how to do things or what they should believe. There was false teaching going everywhere, and many were considering deviating from or just abandoning the faith altogether. Why? Because living for Jesus in a broken world is hard, and it seemed like the world was winning. So they're tempted to just throw in the towel. And the point of showing these early Christians uh, what was happening behind the curtains Tons of reasons, but here are three. To reveal the spiritual realities behind their trials and temptations. What you see isn't all there is. Number two, to warn them about that danger and to encourage them to endure through it without being defiled or tainted by the pressures and enticements of this world. And number three, to show them that because Jesus crushed the serpent's head, because he did, in him they are more than conquerors and nothing can stand against them. That was their situation. And the truth is, their situation isn't much different from ours. And if the Lord tarries, it won't be much different from believers in the future. Like Jesus said in John 16, in this world, you will have trouble. So the message for the early church was the same message I think we need to hear today, and it's this. The king of kings has won the world war. Really, the war of the worlds, the king of kings has won. And in him, we are more than conquerors. 
That's what Easter is about. That's what Easter is about. And our text for today comes from Revelation 5, verses 1 through 7. Our outline for our time together is really hefty. Just kidding. It's one point. I have some jokes. Uh, Revelation 5, 1 through 7. And the one point is this. The king takes his throne. We're going to read our text. We'll jump right in. So hear the word of the Lord. Revelation 5, 1 through 7. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I, John, began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And then one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He is conquered. He's conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for it. The king takes his throne. We'll start with verses one through four. What's happening here? Well, we're getting a peek through John's eyes at the throne room of heaven. And we're jumping in. This is chapter 5, but where we're jumping in, John is standing front and center before the God who created all that is. And then in verse 1, John looks around and he sees a scroll in God's hand with writing on both sides of it. And he sees that the scroll is sealed. And this is one of the reasons I think people have a hate relationship with the book of Revelation. It's kind of tricky. It's kind of confusing. It's hard to understand. It's not just like, you know, the golden rule or, or something like that. It's filled with metaphors and imagery, and I get that, and so I'm happy to play your tour guide today and point out some things. Uh, the scroll that John sees, the scroll in God's hand, contains all of God's sovereign, redemptive, and good plans for the universe. It contains God's secret mysterious, impossible for us to understand or believe in the midst of hardship, plans to overthrow evil and restore his creation to what it was meant to be. That's what's on those scrolls. And where a normal scroll would have writing on one side, right? Because it's made of animal skin. You can write on one side and on A normal scroll would have writing on one side. These scrolls have writing on both sides. And do you know what that means? It means that the good that God intends to do in this world is so much that it can't be contained on one side. The good that God intends to bring about, to fix in this world, is so much it can't be contained on one side. It's written on both sides. But that scroll is sealed with seven seals. These plans to restore and redeem can only be enacted if the scroll is opened. Uh, if it doesn't get opened, all of God's purposes for this world uh, will never transpire. Y'all, we need that scroll to get open. We need it to get open, which is why in verse 2, an angel shows up. And with a loud voice, a voice loud enough for all of creation to hear, it had to have made John's ears hurt, the angel challenges and calls out to all of creation, not just in heaven, asking this question, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who? And one commentator explains that this is what the angel is asking. He's asking this. Who has the ability to go into God's presence? Who has the ability to go into God's presence and take that scroll from his hand and even then open it and do and bring to pass all the things that God would intend for 
goodness in this world. Who can do that? In God's hand is the blueprint, the blueprint, uh, the rescue plan for all of creation. All that needs to happen to make this world right again. That's what's in God's hand. But who? Who can open it? Who can do it? And verse 3 tells us, no one. No one. No one in heaven. Uh, no one on earth. No one under the earth was able to open the scroll or even look into it. No one was worthy. No one was able. And with verse 3, uh, the universe doesn't have a champion. No one to fight for us. And if there's no one who can defeat the dragon, if there's no one who can alter the course of this world that's headed towards despair and destruction, then there's no hope for humanity. Which is why uh, we see in verse 4, John begins to weep in devastation. He's weeping loudly, and you have to understand why, right? If God's plan to redeem and restore this world isn't enacted, then evil wins. Not just an idea of evil. I'm talking about actual evil and brokenness, death, disease, oppression, lies, murder, gossip, infidelity, and sin. We'll get the final word. If the scroll isn't open, that means that no one is coming. There's no silver lining. There's no comfort. There's no hope. There's no purpose to our pain. It is what it is. We'd be dead in our trespasses, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The story could have ended here, but God. Let's keep reading verses 5 through 7. I won't read it. You can just look at it. We'll just keep moving. Uh, as John wept and wallowed in hopelessness, uh, one of the elders comes to him to tell John some good news. The elder comes to share the gospel with John, and the gospel sounds like this. Weep no more. Stop crying. Behold, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The elder tells John that Eve's son, the heir of David's throne, the one promised who would sit on David's throne forever, he won. He has conquered Jesus fought in the cosmic battle on behalf of his people, and he was victorious. He defeated the last great enemy, and he came to liberate us once and for all and forever. Jesus has won. It's great. He vanquished the forces of evil. He crushed the dragon's head, and he overcame the grave. And as a result, he can open the scroll and its seven seals, right? Look what the elder says. He conquered so that purpose statement, so that he can open the scroll and his seven seals. He alone is worthy. He alone can enact God's sovereign, redemptive, good plans for the universe. He alone can overthrow evil and set and realter the course of our existence and put it on the right path and redeem it and restore it to what it was meant to be. The elder tells John that Jesus, the Lion of Judah, has conquered. What John hears in verse 5 is the announcement of a lion. You see that, yeah? And a lion conjures an image of a strong, powerful, majestic, yet absolutely terrifying creature. Verse 5, he hears news about a lion conquering. But when he looks in verse 6, he sees a lamb as though it was slain. 
with its throat slit and maybe blood stained in the wool. He hears news of a lion, but when he looks, he sees a lamb that's slain. Those are pretty starkly different, yeah? In the ancient world, a lion was the picture of supreme authority and royalty. Kings would have lions on opposite sides of their thrones and in their throne room. Lions were a picture of power and royalty and authority, but a lamb. A sheep was a picture of vulnerability, death, weakness. So what's the deal? Uh, Craig Keener explains it like this. Jesus conquered, but not by force. Jesus conquered by death. Not by violence, but by martyrdom. The lion is the lamb. The lion is the lamb. Heaven's champion, the lion of Judah, defeated, conquered, was victorious over the ultimate forces of evil in this world. The lion of Judah. How did he do it? Through the ultimate weakness of this world, through death. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. That's what Isaiah said. The Lamb of God sacrificed himself to save us. And that's where we go, and that is 100% true. But by his wounds, we are not only healed. By his wounds, we are also victorious. What I'm trying to tell you is that Easter isn't just about the Lamb's sacrifice to forgive the sins of the world. It is that. Praise God for that. It's not less than that. It's also about the lion's cosmic victory over every force of evil. He is victorious over everything that would destroy or obliterate God's good and lovely creation. The lion is the lamb. He conquered over death. And the lamb is the lion. His death is the victory. So in verse 7, the lion lamb takes the scroll and he unrolls it, which is why I call this first and only point. The king takes his throne because Jesus isn't just the king of my heart and yours. God's kingdom, his power, his plan, his rescue mission isn't limited to my soul and yours. This whole world is his and his salvation is cosmic. And with this scene from Revelation 5, we see that Jesus intends to exercise his cosmic rule. He takes the seven-sealed scroll and opens it, and he intends to enact God's double-sided, cannot-be-contained-on-one-side good plans for redemption and restoration and justice. He takes the scroll and he opens it. It just saves us. It's going to save all of it, fix all of it. Uh, so when we say he has risen, we're proclaiming the unbelievable, beautiful reality that Jesus has conquered. Evil is forever defeated. That's the message of Easter. And that's good news, y'all. Yeah? Yes, in this world, we'll still have trouble. We'll still feel pain. We'll still feel pressure and grief from sin and brokenness in this world. And yes, the dragon is still prowling around trying to deceive, distract, and destroy us. But the point of this revelation, the reason that God allows us to see behind the curtain on what was transpiring in the heavenly realm is to show us that he has conquered, he is for us, and if he's for us, then who can stand against us? That's the point of showing us behind the curtain. And that's why Paul writes this in Romans 8. What then shall we say in response to this? This incredible news. Uh, if God is for us, who can be against us? 
He did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us. And if he did that, how will he not also, along with giving us Jesus, how will he not graciously and freely give us all things? That's what Paul's asking. Paul's saying if God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, if he did not hesitate to embrace our condition and to expose himself to the worst that humanity can do, if God did not hesitate to send his son to die in our place, if he was willing to do that, what problems are you experiencing today that are distracting you? If he didn't hesitate to do that, if he was willing to do that, how will he not also freely and graciously give us all things? It pales in comparison to what he's already shown you he's willing to do. Uh, but Paul doesn't stop there. Do you remember in Revelation 5 where the angel comes and challenges, calls on all creation, who is worthy to open the scroll? The answer was no one but the Lamb. You remember that? Well, in Romans 8, uh, verses 33 and following, Paul throws down a similar challenge. He calls out, uh, he says to everyone, whether on earth, in heaven, or under the earth, asking this, who would dare tangle with God's people? Who's even going to point a finger at them? Who's got that kind of courage? Who will bring any charges against God's people? He's already paid their penalty. He has justified them. The eternal judge over all of the world has declared them to be in the right. He's forgiven every sin they've ever committed, past, present, and future. So who will try to condemn them now? Who's going to appeal that verdict? Who can overthrow it? Nobody. Nobody. The one who died for us, who was raised to life for us, is in the presence of God at this very moment, sticking up, interceding, pleading for us now. You know what that means? It means that nothing can get between his love for us. Nothing will wedge that gap. Not trouble, not hard times, not hatred, not hunger, not homelessness, not threats, not betrayal, not anything. Nothing can come between us and the love of God. The worst the world can throw at us won't even put a dent in it. Paul says, no, in all of these things, the things that we see and experience and focus on in the seen realm that distract us and discourage us, he says, no, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We share in the victory of the lion lamb. And then Paul ends with this. One of my favorite few verses in Scripture. For I am sure that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. The point of this unorthodox Easter sermon is to remind us all that the lion lamb didn't only come to forgive us our sins. He did that. Praise God for that. He came to defeat evil forever. He came to rule and reign in complete authority and set this world on a different course came to redeem this whole world and to raise us up and seat us with him, not just then, uh, but even right now. He prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. And before I came up here, we already feasted with the King of Kings in communion. In the face of everything that transpires out there, we have peace and communion with God and he raises us up and he is with us here. But before uh, we close, I just want to see, I want you to see one more thing. Uh, in Revelation 5, John gets to see and experience the results of Easter Sunday in heaven. Uh, when the lion lamb takes the scroll and unrolls it, 
all of heaven erupts into this like insanely infinite frenzy of beautiful, harmonious worship, and it's so cool. Uh, Verses 11 through 14 of Revelation 5. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voices of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is he to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessings. And then I heard every creature, where? In heaven and where? On earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessings and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Earth and heaven aren't two separate existences. They are interconnected. God's world and our world, they kiss They kiss. And my prayer for us this Easter Sunday is that we would feel the rumblings of heaven's worship. And more than that, I pray that we would join in that same song, ascribing blessings and honor and glory to the lamb who was slain and the lion who conquered on our behalf. For he alone is worthy. He is risen. Amen. Let's pray.